This is the Tan Report. I'm your host, Tan Trung. The memorial service for Ed Muniz, which took place right before Memorial Day weekend, had traditional aspects to it. There were spiritual songs. priests, family and friends who spoke of the life and loss of a man whom many people respected. But the setting for the service wasn't typical. It was at the Pontchartrain Center in Kenner, which is usually reserved for conventions, trade shows, you know, big events. And for a good chunk of Ed Muniz's life, the word big followed him around. After all, he was the founder of the biggest carnival organization in the New Orleans area. We call them crews down here. Muniz established the crew of Endymion in 1967. Today, it's one of the so-called super crews, with more than 3,000 members, along with a roster of parade floats that have captivated Mardi Gras crowds for years. He was innovative. He wasn't afraid to take other people's suggestions, and if he saw that and he liked it, well, let's, let's, let's do it to it, only we're going to do it better, <laughs> bigger and better. That's Arthur Hardy. To a lot of locals, the Mardi Gras guy that he authors is like the Bible, and he's sort of the guru of Mardi Gras. Hardy has probably told the story of how the crew of Endymion began thousands of times. But now that Ed Muniz has passed away, the story just seems more meaningful. Hardy says the Endymion parade really started simply. There was no parade on Saturday night in New Orleans, the, the night before what Bacchus would be, you know, a couple of years later. The Adonis parade had gone out of business, so Saturday night was dark, and he wanted to have a parade. Had trouble getting a permit, took two years. And it was a it was a nothing parade. I, I saw that parade as a 21 year old kid, um, kid young man. And they, you know, it's, the story's been told so many times. Rented Carrollton floats, less than 200 members, and it was, you know, it was an okay parade, nothing special. No one knew. Ed didn't know what it was going to grow into be, to being. A quick primer for folks not familiar with all of this: the weekend before Mardi Gras, aka Fat Tuesday, is really an orgy of parade and parties. The three super crews, the crew of Endymion, the crew of Bacchus, and the crew of Orpheus, each roll on one night before the final day of Carnival, which is Fat Tuesday. So Endymion rolls on Saturday night, Bacchus rolls on Sunday night, and Orpheus rolls on Monday night, also known as Lundi Gras. That's what New Orleanians have come to expect, and the parades rarely disappoint. As Endymion grew, a friendly competition developed with the crew of Bacchus, which Munez and Endymion were constantly being compared to. Arthur Hardy says in those early days, the man behind the modern Mardi Gras floats lit the competitive flame in Muniz. Blaine Kern, the super salesman that he was, took Ed to see the Marcus Parade inside the Rivergate. And once Ed saw that, he said, well, this is the future of Mardi Gras. You either, you either you know, emulate them or, or you're just going to be an ordinary parade forever. And eventually, you know, he, he liked to say we out-Bacchus-Bacchus Bacchus, and, and did, you know, became twice as big. Big. It's how Muniz approached Endymion. And at the memorial service at the Pontchartrain Center, the big presence of Endymion was all around. The stage had a Greco design. Endymion was part of Greek mythology. There were framed pictures of Muniz in his Mardi Gras regalia. And right as you entered the hall, greeting everyone, was a smiling, inflatable, Greek-like figure wearing a robe with a sash over one shoulder that read, Endymion. At one point in the service, four of Muniz's grandchildren got on stage and reflected on the many memories they had of him. Endymion, of course, figured prominently in those memories. As the grandkids would tell it, 
Munez was always thinking of how to improve what was already a spectacular show. One year, a family vacation to New York City became a sort of reconnaissance mission for the parade. On a family trip to New York, he saw a giant interactive advertisement in Times Square where pedestrians could see themselves walking by on the screen. He was enamored and talked the rest of the trip about how cool it was and struggled with how to borrow the idea for a Mardi Gras float. Later that year, ETV was born, Mardi Gras' largest selfie. Every year we see that screen float, we are reminded of being all together in New York when he had that epiphany. It can be easy to view Ed Muniz's life through the lens of Mardi Gras because there's a visible, physical reminder of what he created that rolls through New Orleans every year. But doing that would overlook the busybody that was Ed Muniz. People called him sometimes the ringmaster because he was juggling a three-ring circus, radio, endymion, uh, politics. And I saw all of this in the beginning, and I was like, holy cow, what is going This man just does everything, and he does it without any stress. He just rolls. That's Jim Hanzo, a son-in-law of Ed Muniz, and also one of his former employees. The first time he met his future father-in-law, it didn't go so great. In the early 1980s, Hanzo was looking for an on-air radio gig in New Orleans. Because I really first met him in 1983 or 84. And the way that came about was he, he had Whale 105, which was an urban dance station. He, he was into urban radio. He had a lot of those stations, the OK stations, BOK, XOK. He had Whale 105 with uh, Barry Richards, who was programming it. They were going to change format. And the reason they were changing format, I guess the ratings weren't there. They had a tower in Slidell, and they, nobody else in the market was country. So he decided he was going to go country, and he was going to keep it under wraps because he didn't want anybody else to jump on it. So he had hired a guy by the name of Scott Seagraves to be the program director, and Scott was working in another radio station at the time. This hadn't happened yet, you know. And I found out about it somehow, and I went to see Scott. And I go into the other radio station. I said, Scott, I'm, I'm Jim Hanzo. I'm, I'm uh, looking for an on-air job. I'd like to, you know, be on at the next radio station. And he says, oh, yeah. He says, it's, it's nice to meet you. But uh, he says, listen, I'm not going to – I decided I'm not going to take the job. I'm going to stay where I am. I, he said, I suggest you go see Ed Muniz. He's the owner. Uh, so just go over there on Gentilly and go see him. So I said, okay. So I go over there, and right away you go in, and uh, I think I made an appointment. They said, he'll be with you in, in a minute. And a minute turned into about an hour and a half, and I'm in the kitchen. I'm sitting in a chair. I'm waiting. I'm doing I'm like, what is, why is this man, you know, holding me up here? But I waited. Finally, I get to see him in his office. And he's looking down at the ground. He's got his glasses on. I said, Mr. Munez, I'm, I'm, I'm here because I'm coming to apply for a job. I went to see Scott, Scott Seagraves, but he said he's not taking the job, and I should come see you instead. And he looks up, and he says, he's not taking a job. What do you mean he's not taking a job? And he gets on his phone. Scott Seagraves not taking a job. What are we going to do? And I'm like, what did I just get myself into? Needless to say, that interview did not go well. It ended up. You know, not happening. And then a couple of years later, they changed to Light 105. I applied for a job there, and I got it. When Hanzo got the job at Light 105, Munez was the head of Phase 2 Broadcasting, which eventually grew to own radio stations in six states in the southern U.S. As far as Jim Hanzo was concerned, those days at Light 105 were golden. 
It didn't hurt that he also met his future wife at the radio station. What a time that must have been. Remember, Hanzo's first meeting with Ed Munez wasn't the smoothest, and now he's dating the boss's daughter. I was working there, and Michelle was working there, and we just got to know each other. And Michelle became, obviously being Ed Munez's daughter, your right, wife. the middle daughter. The radio daughter, really. Uh, although they all work there. And we, we, we just connected. It, it became, um, you know, we started dating. And she would tell her dad, we're just friends. We're just friends at first. So here I was. I had been divorced. I had a young daughter. I was dating the boss's daughter. I had a lot going against me, <laughs> a lot. But he always treated me with respect. And he uh, welcomed me into the family and eventually, and, and uh, it, it worked out. He was very good to me, very good to May me. May I ask, did he remember that interview when you walked in first? I don't or do know. Do you if remember he did. that more vividly than I think did? I talked about it, but I don't think he re really remembered it, but I remembered it. Paint the picture for me, though. I mean, obviously, we're in a different media landscape now, especially in the New Orleans area. But what was it like with Ed in radio in that time? Well, radio was fun. It was a fun time. He'd come in late, 11 o'clock in the day. That was his time. Do not look for him at 8 or 9 because you're just not going to see him then. Uh, 11 o'clock in the day. And then he'd go to lunch. You can have it. Yeah, he'd go to lunch. And then after lunch, then he'd start his business. And I'd get off the air at 7, and I would walk down the hall, and he'd be on his phone in the Jefferson Guarantee Bank building on Causeway and West Esplanade, 10th floor, looking out the window, and he's on the phone. Now, he could be talking radio, but he could be talking Endymion. He could be talking politics. It could be a, any number of things. Muniz seemed to combine a blue-collar work ethic with a business sense that understood opportunities and when to seize them. My favorite Ed Muniz story, he had Whale 105, and it was in Slidell. I mentioned that to you earlier. He needed that the signal wasn't that great, and that was the problem. He gets a call one day from Jerry Romick, who worked for the Archdiocese. And Jerry says, Ed, there's an opening on a tower in Chalmette that the Archdiocese is on. Would you be interested in getting on that tower? I forgot how many feet in the air it was, but it was, and he jumped at the idea. He said, absolutely, I'll do what I have to do. So they worked out the agreement, whatever they had to do, and he got on that tower. Uh, Ernie Harvey, his engineer, is setting everything up. Uh, it took weeks to do this, you know, get everything just right. The day they're going to switch, he says, Ed, we're going to pull the switch this day, but I want you to pull the switch. You're, you know, you're, you're the owner. You deserve to do this. He says, okay. All right. He says, I'm going to do that, but let me call Peggy first at home before I do that. And he calls his wife and he says, Peggy, you know that radio we have that's sitting on the back of the, the toilet there in the bathroom, the one with the little flickering light? He says, I'm going to pull the switch, and when I pull the switch, you tell me what that light's doing, okay? He says, all right, you ready? And he pulls the switch, and he says, Peggy, what's it doing right now? And she says, the light is lit up like a Christmas tree. And he knew right then and there that he had a successful radio station, and things were going to work out for him. And he told me that story, and, you know, I'm a radio guy, and I just loved it. I just, you know, it sent chills down my, my spine uh, hearing that, so... Um, and then from then on, he, he just, you know, it couldn't be stopped. He was good at what he did. He was a, a good salesperson, and he knew how to handle his staff, and he was very generous to everybody. Uh, he wasn't 
I, don't, I would not call him a micromanager by any means. He just let everybody do what they did. One time, he came in early. When he Maybe came 10 in, o'clock. Yeah, and <laughs> half the office staff wasn't there. They hadn't gotten there yet or expected him. Well, right away, he blew up. He uh, installed a time clock, <laughs> and everybody was mad. We had to punch the clock. That lasted about three days, and then he pulled it out. <laughs> that's, that's how he was. You know, He was going to get his point across, but he wasn't going to really go with it. You know, So he pulled back. Munez didn't pull back when it came to competition. Hanzo says Munez had one particular station in his sights. Then eventually he got 95.7. It was mixed 95.7. Uh, he changed it to cool because he wanted an oldie station. Bob Walker was doing afternoon drive. Sherry, the oldie sweetheart, was doing nights. And they would call it backseat memories. Songs that were playing in the front seat while you were in the backseat. <laughs> <laughs> Let the imagination roam. <laughs> and it... You know, he had a following. And, and his idea at the time was take that oldie station and just kind of push it a little bit and squeeze magic out. That was his idea. I mean, we were going to squeeze magic from the other way because we were a little bit hotter than they were. This would be a little bit on the other side. And, and he was going to do that. And he was succeeding until he had the opportunity to sell at radio stations. And then he did. Muniz sold his radio broadcast group in 1999. Included in that was one station that would later become WWLFM. He was a self-made millionaire through his work in radio. He sold his radio stations and did quite well doing that. And the reason he did that was at that time, the big companies were buying. You could own as many stations as you wanted. And he had these two stations. And his thinking was, I can't compete. And he had enough savvy to, to know that, you know, uh, I'm not going to be able to compete with, with these big companies. Hanzo gets nostalgic about the old days of radio, when there was local ownership, when homegrown radio personalities flourished. And live broadcasting, not voice-recorded shows, were the standard. Corporate radio has, it has hurt. It, it, it's hurt radio, uh, in my opinion, um, because they cut corners. You used to do a remote and make good money going out there and doing a remote on a Saturday at a car dealership. You know, finally they did away with that. You don't do that anymore. And technology has a lot to do with it, because... You would hone your craft overnight doing the overnight shift. Well, they don't have an overnight shift anymore. And now everything is, you know, voice tracked quite a bit. For me, it was the beauty. It always sounded bigger and better than it really was. And I love that fact that you would go into a radio station and it was nothing but this little hole in the wall that had absolutely nothing. But it sounded so big. It was great. That was what enticed me. Munez was enticed by radio when he was a young man, so much so that he decided to forego college and put all his time and effort into the broadcasting biz. When Munez decided to start the crew of Endymion, some of what he learned in the radio world, he put to use in the world of parading. Here's Arthur Hardy again. He would promote high school dances, but when he had his first parade, he, he remembered some of those promotional uh, tricks for radio and for promoting dancers. Like for the first Endymion parade, he had little posters made and nailed them up on the light poles around Gentilly. He'd come see the parade, join the parade. Very wisely had every sportscaster in town, radio and TV, ride in the parade in convertibles, guaranteeing he was going to get publicity. They had to talk about his parade. So that, that promotion mind was always you know, rolling. And uh, 
he he built a dynasty over time. Martha Carr with the Times Picayune did an did an article on him back in the early 2000s, and it was I think it was entitled "The Ringmaster," and that's what he was. That's Mike Yenny, the former mayor of Kenner and the former president of Jefferson Parish. He'll be somebody I'll, I'll, I'll miss for the rest of my life. I mean, in both my mayor's office and my um, parish president's office, there were two portraits that hung in that office: my grandfather and Ed. So I got to look at him every day while I was in both of those roles because without those two guys, I wouldn't have been in those roles. If Ed Muniz's life was a three-ring circus, as some people have described it, then politics would be that third ring after the crew of Endymion and Radio. It was in that political ring that Mike Yenny came to idolize Muniz. He was the white hat in government. I mean, he used the word transparency when most politicians had to go look it up in a dictionary. With all that Muniz had going on in his life, planning one of Mardi Gras's largest parades every year, running a radio network, he also managed to carve out a political career and reputation that most politicians would envy. He served multiple terms on the Kenner City Council, the Jefferson Parish Council, and then one term as the mayor of Kenner. It was during his time in the mayor's office that Yenny really learned from Munez. Under Munez, Yenny was the city's chief administrative officer. Yenny says Munez wasn't interested in scoring political points. He was careful about spending city money and he focused on practical issues that affected the lives of people in Kenner. I hated to see him not run for re-election of mayor of Kenner. He was doing some good things. He was really taking on projects that had been kicked down the road that a lot of mayors and administrators didn't take. I mean, we had an unbelievable sewerage situation here in Kenner. And, and a lot of mayors don't like to tackle sewerage because it's not sexy. It's under the ground. Most people don't see it. And 98% of the people in Kenner's toilet probably flushed. And they never had a problem. They don't know what a backup is. Well, Ed felt bad for the 2% that did. The shrewdness that Muniz displayed in the radio industry and his decisions for the Endymion Parade carried over into his political dealings. You know, he was always on the legislative branch until he became the mayor and became the administrative branch. So Ed was one of those, I mean, even with Endymion, you know, he used to say, I used to say, boy, with these changes in New Orleans, is that going to affect Endymion? He'd be like Mike, and he'd hold up his finger, four votes. It takes four votes, and I'm going to get my four votes. So he even knew in New Orleans he needed four of seven council members with him, and, and that's what he did. But he never had to trade votes. I mean, Ed would, Ed would get those four votes for the right reason. You know, it wouldn't be like, okay, if you help me here, I'll help you there. Ed would make his argument, and as a lot of people said, you could go in for a 30-minute meeting with Ed, and two and a half hours later, you'd come out of it, because he would, he would beat you down. He'd beat you down telling, telling you why it needed to be this, not that, why it was for good government, and he was going to call you out on it if it wasn't for good government. Munez may have been a millionaire, but Yenny says he was fiscally conservative. That was on full display when he ran for Kenner mayor in 2006. And he truly ran unconventional campaigns, because... The other, the other campaigns had signs out. Their campaign strategists had their messages out. I mean, you, you can't come into a, a race that late with those types of veterans and be able to think you're going to win. He thought he was going to win, and he did. He almost won it in the first. That's how positive his, his messaging was. And he didn't believe in polls. They were polling it. He didn't poll it because he didn't want to spend money on polls. He wanted Because that, that campaign, he completely self-financed. He said this will truly be a noble experience in good government. And he probably spent $300,000 of his own money to do it. And what's even sad is he had a small little retirement from Kenner when he was on the Kenner Council. When he won, they froze the retirement. They wouldn't put him back in the system. They just froze the retirement. So he used to jokingly say, can you believe this job's cost me $600 a month. <laughs> Yenny told me the money Munez didn't spend on polling, he spent on political ads, like signs and posters. Some ended up in the hands of his grandkids, 
They talked about that during his memorial service. During his campaign for mayor, we would get checked out early from St. Elizabeth School to hold up signs on the corner of Williams and West Esplanade. We even had a sign made that said, please vote for my papa, and which somehow my dad's 80-year-old mother ended up holding. And as you can imagine, that caused much confusion to those who were driving by. Fiscal conservatism ran through Muniz's three-ring circus, but he made exceptions. Here's Arthur Hardy again. There's one Ed Muniz story that I've, I've never told, and I guess I can now that he's gone. I was good friends with uh, his, I don't know, my, my bodyguard, chief of security, somebody who would drive him to events and all. And he said, you know, Ed's got a reputation for being tight. You know, he'd get to Shoney's before the 6 o'clock special ended or something. You know, he's a guy who sold his radio stations for $30 million. Anyway, he said Ed was tight. So at one time I'm with him. He was getting a bracelet or something for, for his wife, Peggy, or one of the daughters at a uh, jewelry store. He said there was a Marine in there who, you know, you could tell was counting his pennies, getting an engagement ring or something. And Ed went over to the owner. He said, don't you tell him. He said, put that on my tab. But just tell him you got a benefactor who likes soldiers. And he paid for the guy's ring. Now, how special is that from a guy who's trying to get coupons at Denny's or Shelly's or something. Well, i got to tell you this. I mean, I, I spoke with Mike Yen, and he mm-hmm. said that Ed didn't like polling because he didn't want to pay for it. He'd rather <laughs> spend the money on ads and you know, putting up signs. <laughs> yeah. So I guess he, you know, you're not alone in observing that he was frugal with his money. And yet generous when he wanted for to sure. be. The only time that Muniz didn't seem to be generous was when he was talking about himself. In 2013, he was interviewed by New Orleans Magazine and was asked about that year's Endymion Parade. And there's a moment that he reflects on how far the parade has come. But he never claims himself as the driving force. My most favorite time is between King's Day and Carnival Day, from the 40 funny fellows to Rex and Zulu. My favorite time within that span is the Saturday before Mardi Gras for obvious reasons. And, and, and probably the, my highlight is to sit in a Superdome on the night of the Endemian Extravaganza and look out over, over 15,000 people and another 15,000 trying to get tickets. And you stop and think, when we did this 48 years ago, it was so small. There's a little neighborhood parade from D.C. Boulevard from the fairgrounds. And now it's grown into this mammoth parade with 2,800 members, uh, numerous floats, and, 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 and popularity that people know about us from all over the country now. So uh, that's what I think about. How in the hell did all this happen? From Arthur Hardy's perspective, it happened because Ed Muniz had the vision to go bigger and be bolder. But also, he had the vision to see when he should defer. Hardy says he did that when choosing the bands and entertainment for the Endymion extravaganza, which was the party after the parade. It takes place in the Superdome now, and in the past, the extravaganza had headliners like Maroon 5, Kiss, and the Commodores. He was smart enough to know there's another way. Same thing with some of the entertainment he'd hire. He'd call me up and say, I'm getting... I said, Ed, I never heard of those people. He said, neither have I. But my daughter's telling me they're the hottest thing, and they know what's going on, so I'm getting them. Good for you. And, and, it, and it worked. You know, I mean, they had Doc Severance and the Harry James Orchestra. That worked in the 60s and 70s. It wouldn't work now. And he was smart enough to know, I don't know who, but I know who knows who. That's a rare combination to be able to, to stick with your roots and yet know you got to fly. And he did that. 
And when his daughters couldn't give him the pulse on what was cool, he turned to his grandchildren. In the summer every year, while riding in the car, he would randomly turn to us and ask us things like, what do you think about Maroon 5, Kelly Clarkson, or maybe Lady Gaga? After doing his own research, he loved to get a younger perspective on who should be the Grand Marshal or Entertainment for that year, and we were his millennial sounding board. The night before parade day, he would get so excited to rally us up into the bus, drive down Arlene's Avenue, and view the people camping out for the following night. If those people only knew how much he appreciated him. The memorial service was the community's chance to show their appreciation of Ed Muniz. In the latter years of his life, Muniz was diagnosed with dementia. His family witnessed the sharp mind that ran the three-ring circus slowly betray him. But they say he never gave up. It wasn't in his nature. One song could probably sum up his fighting spirit. That's Life by Frank Sinatra. It was a song Muniz would play in the car every summer on family trips to Destin, Florida. There was a specific line to the song that was important to him, and he always told us to listen to the words. I've been up and down and over and out, but I know one thing. Each time I find myself flat on my face, I pick myself up and get back in the race. After belting that part out, we'd sometimes rewind and play that part two or three times over again, just to make sure we understood the meaning of the lyrics. That no matter where life takes you, or even if you fail, always get back up and try again. Safe to say the grandkids understand the meaning of those lyrics. And by the end of the memorial service, it was undeniable what their grandfather meant to so many people. Ed Muniz was 83. In Kenner, I'm Tan Trung for WWL Radio.